This is episode number nine, Refuse to Lose with Adele Harris. Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Today's guest is someone that I've wanted to have on the show for quite some time. She's a former Wake Forest standout, college basketball head coach, motivational speaker, and CEO of her own company, Refuse to Lose. Today's episode features Adele's take on leadership and why it's important for all of us to be leaders within our own fields, the importance of creating your own platform in order to inspire others, taking ownership of your story, the importance of finding your creative outlet. Once again, I highly recommend you listen to today's episode as she's the perfect example of someone who is going after her dreams and not letting anything get in her way. Without further ado, please welcome Adele Harris. Thank you so much for joining us here today. And if you don't mind, I would like to start off by you sharing a little bit about your upbringing. For those of us who don't know much about it, um, what kind of environment you grew up in, what kind of impact did your family have on you? Yeah, uh, so I'm Adele Harris, very happy to, to be on the podcast. Um, I am, uh, I was born, so I've, I've been in North Carolina, um, you know, I'm gonna say 90, 97% of my life. So I was born in Jacksonville, North Carolina, um, and I have no, uh, I have no relationship or, or don't know my biological parents. So I was put up for adoption at three months old and um, was adopted by a couple from High Point, North Carolina, which is in the, right in the middle of the state called the Triad area. And that's where I was raised. And that's what I consider and call home. Um, sports and basketball was just a huge component to the piece to the puzzle. Um, I, I don't know how familiar any of the listeners are or you are, Oleg, with Tobacco Road and um, but but in North Carolina, um, NC State, Wake Forest, Duke, and North Carolina are the only four high major uh, universities that are, from an athletic standpoint, that are less than an hour and a half from each other. Nowhere mm. else in America uh, do you have uh, that that many schools uh, with that that much of uh, high profile athletics and. Um, in the ACC and one of the high major conferences for athletics nationally, um, nowhere else in America do you get that. And so I just became a, a byproduct of one of those kids who grew up idolizing, you know, uh, basketball on Tobacco Road, which is Interstate Highway 40, um, that runs straight through. That kind of connects all of those universities and schools and. Uh, very fortunate because, um, as your community knows, being adopted has its challenges. You know, my mom, my adopted mom, used to always tell us that we were special. Um, I have an adopted older brother, um, 
she would always communicate really clearly when we were younger that we were chosen and that being adopted made us special. And I, I always thought that was cool. And it's given me a confidence today that, you know, I don't, I don't feel, you know, I feel what everyone else feels about it, but I definitely don't feel angry or upset by that, by that, by that part of my life. I, mm -hmm. I totally accepted it. And I love that, that she's, she communicated in that way to, to us. So uh, that's a, that's a little bit about, you know, my, my growing up and where I grew up. Where, where did you get the inspiration to play basketball? Well, when I was, uh, so, so when I was eight years old, I got adopted at three months old and my, I had a brother who was also adopted and he was four years older than me. And he was my first hero, my first best friend, um, that kind of deal. It was just me and him at the time. My mom went on to have over 50 foster kids living, um, kind of in and out of our home over the course of my adolescence and high school years. But mm -hmm. initially it was just me and him and he wanted a, a little sister. And so when I came along uh, four years younger than him, you know, he, he wanted me around all the time. I wanted to be around him all the time. He was, he was my biggest fan. I was his biggest fan. Um, he wanted to try out for the middle school basketball team. So this is when he was 12 and I believe I was eight and uh, he wanted to try out, and because he wanted to try out, I had to become a basketball player too because I was going <laughs> to do everything he did. So, um, so I did, and you know, you just never know what kind of ripple effect is going to occur based on one little decision. And uh, again, my community was very much so a basketball or sports um, town, and. Um, always looked at bigger visions and people that played in, again, the ACC. And um, it was just important where we were if you were an athlete. And so that was a place where I got my identity for the first time was being an athlete. And I played with my brother and his older friends for the first five years that I played. And by the time it was time to play against girls, it was a whole lot easier. I had already paid my dues. I had, you know, um, elevated my, myself in that space um, probably more than any any other eight-year-old or 10-year-old little girl could. Mm -hmm. So uh, it ended up being, an, again, I talk about adversity becoming your advantage. It ended up being an advantage um, that, you know, my brother wanted to do that. And then I grabbed a hold to it and, and doors were able to open up for me in ways that I could have never imagined. That's funny. My, my brother actually had a similar impact on me. Uh, when I came here, he was just a little bit older than I was. And um, he was, he played basketball for quite some time in high school. So, you know, I, I still remember my early days of learning the sport and not knowing how to shoot or yeah. sh shooting <laughs> hook shots from three point line because I just couldn't find the form. And yeah, but after a while, you know, he had the same exact thing where he just said, um, you know, just got to keep pushing at it. And then I still remember all the games would play in our backyard and yeah. kind of, you know, obviously I lost, I think, for <laughs> two or three, maybe even four years straight. And then I remember that first victory I had and funny story, we haven't played since. So I don't, <laughs> I don't I'm not, I'm, I'm hoping that that will change one day. And he's, he's not he wants, a, he wants no parts of you, Oleg. Exactly, no exactly. <laughs> Um, so within your story that you shared on our website, one of the things that I wanted to get into was uh, you had mentioned uh, th some things about your 
upbringing, how you were brought in at times in a verbally and sexually abusive environment.、Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for other people who are experiencing a similar situation? Because, you know, I don't have the direct experience, but I know from other people,、mm-hmm. it's it seems to be a lot more complex than simply saying, "All right, I've had enough of it. I got to get、oh, out."、Yeah. Well, it's definitely it's definitely way complex, and everybody's story is going to be different. So,、uh, you know, I, this th- th- these things、uh, have worked for me and are still working for me because I don't think you ever stop、uh, trying to. Um, you know, improve and evolve and grow and and love yourself more and better and and be accepting of all those things. I think it's a daily challenge. If you're really really serious about growth, I think you wake up every day with the intention to do something that's going to get you closer to to. And I don't even know if there's a such thing as completion because we're just expand. We're evolving creatures. So,、mm-hmm. um, but there is an intent behind it. But what I'll say about you know at the age of Eight, I was sexually abused by my mom's second husband, and、um, my mom got married five times, and so、uh, that was her.、Uh, I guess that, I mean, looking back on it, obviously that was her vice, that was her thing. She didn't drink. I didn't grow up in a in a home with alcohol, or、um, you know, we were in church, so her language wasn't bad. You know, it was、uh, it was that, and、um, inviting people into our space that wasn't. That that didn't treat us well, and、um, obviously, you know, as a child, if you 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 are your environment, you you take on all those cues from your environment, and you、yep. become programmed by your environment and the people in it. And there were just so many different people and personalities in and out of our environment that that were not healthy、um, for young developing brains. And so,、uh, and my mom was a bit of a bully. You know, back in the '90s, you you wouldn't have identified it. As a bully, I don't even know what that was a word yet. You know, when people talk about you, it was just people talked about you. Get over it. Sticks and stones may break my bones, <laughs> but words will never hurt me. You know,、um, that's something we used to say all the time. But you know, and the tr- the fact is, words do hurt you, <laughs> and they define who you are, and they, you know, they leave scars on your your brain and your heart for for years. And、mm-hmm. some of us never get over them, particularly when it's your mom or your dad or someone you love. So.、Um, Being raised in a church was a was an advantage,、um, because I just felt like there was a there was something bigger. I felt like there was a faith or something that I could believe in that was bigger. I didn't know if it was gonna you know save me and and you know make me get over some of these things. And when you're living in these things, one you don't know you have to get over it. <laughs> That's one thing. You know you don't know you're poor until you grow up and you get out and you see what other people are doing, and then you're like, oh yeah, we were pretty poor. But you know, while you're living in this situation, you just maybe carry that embarrassment, or、um, you're hard on yourself, or you're trying to figure out, you know, sexually trying to identify, you know, where sex and love complement, or、mm-hmm. what is that, or you're really confused and you don't have a lot of、uh, clearly defined lines around love and some of these things, but. Um, I don't think you learn that until you get out of your current environment and you force yourself into discovery and questioning those old paradigms and those old beliefs.、Uh, but the church and, and my belief in God and, and faith、um, has been huge. It's part of what I do now. I just inspire people. I want to live the rest of my life inspiring people to make adversity their advantage and putting themselves first and owning their outcome. But basketball was another tool. 
uh, it just was a, it was a huge distraction for me. I, it was therapy, you know, a sport and athletics and recreation is therapy. It's scientifically proven that uh, it's a form of therapy. And so as much as I lost myself in the sport of basketball, um, it was also a healing portion for me and, uh, and also, you know, gave me again an identity <clears throat> outside of the one that I was developing within my four, the four walls of my home, you know, so mm-hmm. I could go and be a really good basketball player and people like that. Um, and I didn't have to be a, a kid that was sexually abused or had these questions about uh, what was appropriate around sex and, and my questions around love and, you know, who my biological father was and why my adopted father wasn't in the picture. It was, it was a space for me where who I was was really, really good enough. And oftentimes it was more than good enough because in American culture, we over sensationalize anybody who plays a sport, which is the weirdest thing ever. But we glorify athletes in ways that I just doesn't make sense. But um, I happen to benefit greatly from that energy, though. That's very interesting. Uh, so one of the speakers that we're trying to get within the next couple of months is Colin Kaepernick. And you bring up a very good point about, you know, people either glorifying their position within athletics. But I think that what he's doing, it's something interesting because, you know, he's essentially created a platform for himself and using it for the betterment of what he envisions a community being. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's important, you know, to, to be smart enough to recognize that with this platform, I can really use it to say some things that really do matter. Uh, mm-hmm. And and but, you know, society can also say that you no longer get the platform anymore. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, we don't want to hear you talk about this stuff. And um, and so I, I, I totally, you know, commend what Colin Kaepernick's done by just putting his neck out on the line and and, you know, taking, in my opinion, it's the higher road morally to uh, to challenge and question the authority there. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming all of your experiences to date, that's what creator refused to lose. You're, 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 you're pretty much right. I mean, refuse to lose has been a, it's, it's, it's three words that, um, you know, are very common in, in the sport world. Like you'll hear it, you know, like my first coaches or my first coach and my current mentor now would say it in our timeouts, you know, we're, we're down in a game or we're struggling or we're trying to find a way to come back. I mean, um, it's a term that you hear often. Uh, Coach Calipari used it when he was at UMass back in the 90s with Marcus Camby. It's uh, it's something you've heard in sport before. But so uh, that has something to do with just how common it's been. The phrase has been in my total existence, you know, irregardless. And athletes take everything they learn from sport and they just transfer it over to everything else they do in the world. So um, everything that I, I probably will mention in regards to my vocabulary and language have been things that I've you know, learned or incorporated through sport and, and used for leadership purposes and all those things as a coach. Um, but it's all transferable. Interesting. What, yeah. <laughs> can you talk a little bit about the mindset that you've developed as an athlete? So kind of how how you started off when when you started off because i'm sure that you didn't have you might have had the same drive and persistence um at everything you did but how did that evolve over time did it transform into anything else did you add elements along the way um you know initially 
I just wanted to be a, a, a really good basketball player. You know, well, I'll, I'll back up. Initially, I wanted to use basketball to get out of my home. Mm. Right. So, you know, like you played in the backyard, you know, this is back in the 90s where in 80s where kids did go outside and they stayed all day. And that's what I and that's what basketball was for me. So from sunup to sundown in the summers, this is what I was doing. Then you get to, you know, middle school, definitely by high school. It was something that people outside of my neighborhood were noticing that, hey, she's pretty good. And I started to get a level of attention from it. Mm. And, and, and just like I am now, you know, and, and I don't shy away from it. I'm an individual that wants attention. It has something to probably do with being an adopted child and, and, um, being raised in a home where there's so many revolving individuals and, and maybe never getting those opportunities to be, uh, the, the center of attention. I use that attention now to try to say something inspiring that helps people, though, um, at this point. But when I was younger, I, I knew I could feel it. I could feel that I was important to people because they saw that that was good. And um, and people came into my life because of basketball. They, they you know, made sure I was fed. They made sure I, I stayed out of trouble. Teachers worked a little harder to help me. Um, it's just the truth. And um Obviously, you know, got a full scholarship to attend Wake Forest University because of the sport. But prior to that, it was just a something that I needed to get out of the house and out of my environment. And then it became something the first place where I really got uh, attention from a crowd and applause and uh, built my confidence and self-esteem. And uh, obviously something I really, really loved as well, just growing up in my in my area, in my in my environment. So uh, it's not like it was forced, but I really didn't care about other things. Um, I I really lost myself in 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 the sport and becoming the best I could at it. Now, Mm -hmm. that required layers. Right. So um, it's a team sport. So you have you have leadership responsibilities. Um, You have to have discipline. You you I mean, it's it's definitely sharpened some other tools that I didn't realize it was that were being sharpened. Uh, But it's not like I carried that over as a high school student and say, yeah, let me go be straight A student. (laughs) You know, let me let me make sure I clean my room the best of anybody. Like it wasn't that it was just the basketball thing. Um, so narrow minded at that point. And, uh, and obviously to get out of college, you're stretched to evolve and discover different portions of your personality and character that are going to continue to help you grow and evolve and, and get your degree and complete that task. And then when college is over, you know, you don't get to dribble the basketball anymore. Nobody cares if you can shoot anymore. Now you have this awakening. Mm-hmm. And I pretty much, you know, and all athletes have it being around college athletics for almost 20 years. You, you see them. It's done. And now, you know, nobody cares that you used to dribble, pass and shoot. <laughs> um, and so I had to reinvent myself, so to say, and um, started college coaching because I knew that was the thing I knew more and did better than anything else and thought I could add value to the lives of other people who were coming along in that same in that same world in that same space and I needed a way to pay my bills as well because I didn't have a safety net you know my my uh, adopted father kind of was never really in the picture and by my college years my relationship with my mom was really strained and you know I, I think to say that I really really worked hard to not like her and hate her would be an understatement you know I, I was very passionate about how much I didn't like her uh, in my 20s so 
I knew I didn't have any safety net. I didn't have anything else to fall back on. So I used what I knew and it created a 14 year college coaching career for me where I was able to fortunately make over a million dollars and, and have, and build a life for myself that, you know, has taken me different places. And, you know, obviously being a head coach for eight years, I, I grew more confident in my ability to um, be a leader and, you know, be the face of a program and, um, you know, sit at the head of those t- some of the tables on an academic campus in that space and really have my voice be heard on other on other levels outside of just the basketball portion. So, um, you know, basketball has opened my eyes to a lot of other areas. And, and obviously it's got a lot to do with me being the CEO and founder of my own company now. Mm-hmm. You bring up a very good point regarding defining your purpose. I, I noticed this quite a bit, especially within my uh, generation of millennials, <coughs> is that people oftentimes have a hard time figuring out who or what they want to be. And I've always believed that some your purpose is you something defined over time. I don't mm-hmm. think it's something you wake up with one day and say, okay, this is it. This is what I got to yeah. do. I think you get an idea at times of, okay, this is what I'm interested in. But yeah. at the end of the day, I truly believe that it's as simple and as complex as just making a commitment towards something. And yeah. you're so you're a perfect example of someone who, you know, knew she had to get out of a situation that you didn't want to be in, and then you mm-hmm. just com- committed to it. In your eyes, would you say it is similar, or would you add anything else to that? No. I, I think you're I think you're 100 percent correct uh, in in that in that assessment. You know, I think you there's something that's pulling at you, you know, and I believe if it's if it's for the good of others, if it's in harmony with, you know, what's good in the world, then you got to do it. And that door and that decision, you know, that door you walk through or that decision you make it will be a ripple effect. It'll, you know, it's just, a, our lives are just that. It's just always unfolding. And, but you got to make a decision. <laughs> you got to, you got to go somewhere and then, you know, wherever your feet are planted, you got to try to be really good at it. I think the best thing that happened to me is that I always, because I love basketball so much, and then I became so loyal to it because it got me out of my home. It, it, you know, gave me an opportunity to go to this really, really, you know, dream school. You know, again, I'm talking about, I grew up on Tobacco Road. I went to Wake Forest University, which was, you know, one of the schools I dreamed of going to as a 12-year-old. And all of these things happened for me because I just was committed to trying to be the best I could at a sport. And um, I think it's, I think it's the same <clears throat> I think society glorifies athletes, but I also think athletes dumb down their achievements and their accomplishments often because of because of that. And Interesting. And, and, and like for me, I, it took me a long time to, to realize that what I had the years I have committed to being really good at basketball, most people never do in a lifetime. Commit years to being good at something um, that'll open up doors for them and uh, create a life for them, you know, so it took me a while. And I don't, I, you know, I coach a lot of kids. They, they, they don't take as much pride in that as they maybe should, because that pride will give them confidence to go do the next thing outside of the sport. And mm-hmm. that's the big transition for, I think, athletes or people who are involved in sport to say, you know, 
I really worked hard to become good and it's not easy. You know, it's physically Mm -hmm. exhausting. It's mentally exhausting. And then you got the pressures of people watching you do your job every day. Uh, So I think you're right on though. You gotta, you gotta make the decision to want to be good at something. And then the purpose for why you're doing it and, and your personality combined with your spirit is going to reveal to you, you know, that's what happened in what, what I was doing. You know, I've always been someone on the basketball court who's tried to lead people and serve them uh, as a point guard, as a coach. I tried to do that and then inspire them to be and enlarge their vision of how good they could be or how good the team could be or where we could go and believe in some magic. And, you know, um, I've always been that. that. That's just been, that's the natural thing. And now I've just taken it outside of that world and um, applying it to real life, um, real life pain. You bring up a very good point regarding being good at something. So this is a problem once again that I see, not even within my generation, but within a lot of generations. Um, mm-hmm. Being good at something. So when you had first made that decision, was it a personal thing? Like, did you say to yourself, "I'm going to be good at this," and not? involve other people's opinions and perspectives of what they think you know for example in your college career i can probably i can't directly relate but i can say that you know a good point guard oftentimes is is criticized by people who don't even know basketball you know they don't they don't know how hard it is to make a jump shot or a particular pass and if you miss those then their automatic response is okay that person is not good how yeah. was there ever a time when you allowed other people's criticism essentially enter your mind and mm-hmm. redefine what it is to what it meant to be good in yeah. your perspective? Yeah, I think that's a great that's a great question. And and um, growing up, never that I think I wasn't good. I mean, I respected the older guys that I was playing against enough to know where I stood. So the truth was the truth. Um, but nobody ever told me, you know, hey, you're not good growing up. I was the best in my town by far. And that's because I had put in so many hours of doing it by the time the town saw me, if that makes sense. It's almost like I was in a cave becoming this basketball player with these guys who were four and five years older than me for five years. And now, <laughs> you know, by the time it came for other people to see me, they were like, wow, you mm-hmm. know, and it was the emergence of, you know, Michael Jordan on TV and, and all these other components, too, that I was watching and studying the game and I I had just put in, I had, I had learned so much about it before the world kind of saw me. And when I say the world, I meant just my world of High Point, North Carolina, uh, which then stretched into the state of North Carolina. Now, when I got to college, that was the first time I, and I, and it was, it was hard. It was really hard um, that I just failed. You know, I wasn't good enough. I failed on a consistent basis, whether it was, you know, failed, uh, um, failed, you know, as a, as a player with skill stuff, just needing to improve or, uh, failed with time management and failed with, um, you know, speaking the language of Mm -hmm. a college university, uh, fitting in socially or academically how difficult it was and how challenging it was, or, you know, I was failing a lot. And I think that's the, that's the thing I've learned though, when you're, when you're challenging yourself to operate at a higher level than you currently are, you're going to fail. You know, there are going to be mistakes made, but that's the space you want to live in because it doesn't get easier. You just get better. And I think, um, you know, my college coach, 
and like all college coaches do, if you're not good enough, they'll tell you, um, if you, you know, and they'll tell you either verbally or they'll tell you by not playing you. And I've had both. And I took those things very personally. You know, I internalized it and made it something that was um, uh, about, you know, it, it, it probably hurt me more because basketball had been the one thing that loved me back. And, you know, when it wasn't loving me back anymore, then you peel back the layers of the other pain and hurt. And, and now all of a sudden basketball's not therapy. You know, basketball's really causing me some discomfort as well. So mm-hmm. that college space was the first time that I felt that as an athlete. And I had to get over it. And it was tough. It, it was really hard. Yeah, for sure. How did you turn failure into a lesson mindset? You just don't quit. <laughs> you just don't quit. Um and, you know, when you're younger, I think when I was in college, I, I wasn't thinking, don't quit. I actually remember times I wanted to quit. And I was trying to devise a plan for quitting. Um, but, but you just, but you get, you just get to the next, you get to the next play, you know, like you get, when I say play, I'm speaking from a sports term, but you just, you just wake up the next day and, and do it again. Just do it one more time. Uh, sometimes it, it just has to be that simple. Just just wake up tomorrow and try it one more time. Uh, and, and maybe sometimes you need a rest. So wake up tomorrow and and maybe it's time to rest. Um, but I have, um, I've always valued what Wake Forest University meant for me. And I think in the back of my mind and subconsciously, I knew it was it was really a blessing to be there. And that probably kept me from, you know, quitting and, and, you know, burning relationships or burning bridges and doing something too dumb, even if I was frustrated or struggling. But I was I, I, you know, I struggled some and I think a struggle is a part of a natural part of life. And anytime you go into a space that you're unfamiliar with, you should struggle. You should change. Yeah. Yeah, that's the only way we do change. It's expansion and growth. I mean, when we leave elementary school, we go to middle school, we're nervous. You know, if if kids had it their way, they'd be like, I just want to stay in elementary school, you know? Exactly. Uh, And so the thing about becoming an adult, though, nobody forces us out of those comfort zones anymore. And we have to do it ourselves and not retreat when we get uncomfortable. And so... I've, I've experienced it in sport without question, the voices from the crowd and not being good enough and having to be exposed and um, in front of the crowd to expand and grow. And as a head coach and obviously as a player at a high level, and I respect it. So if the mindset is that, you know, you don't quit and just continue to go at it, mm-hmm. I'm curious to know, how would you know when it is time to mm-hmm. quit? You know, I think, like, yeah, I, I think, it, I think um, that's, that's a really good question as well. I think when it's, when it's, you can't breathe in the space, uh, when it becomes toxic um, for you, like, you know, I coached for um, five years here at UNC Wilmington, the last five years as a head coach. And, you know, I knew it was time to transition into this this other phase of my world because of all the signs. I mean, I think taking, you know, self-awareness and evaluating who you are and taking a step back and saying, okay, what is, if this is hard, what is this here to teach me? What am I supposed to learn in this moment? Um, am I growing? Um, how am I growing? In what direction am I growing? What is this revealing to me? I think asking empowering questions is a way to try to get the answers you need to move forward. And life should flow like water. 
And if it's not flowing like water and you're keep pushing hard against something, um, there has to be adjustments made. And so I, I think that's a very, that's a very good question. I don't know if it's like, you know, I think, you know, I think uh-huh. you get to a point where you know, um, you know, you, you have patience and you try to work it out and you try to get up the next day and you get up the next day. But if that you keep pushing against it and one year becomes two and two becomes three, then you got to start to question things. You know, when I was at Wake Forest, my struggle years were really my earlier years. And, um, you know, I got to a point where the, the weight lifted. You know, my senior year of college, the weight lifted. It all became a lot easier. Um, I became more confident in myself. I took on new strategies and stopped blaming other people and stopped pointing the finger. And, you know, I put it all on myself and, and held myself more accountable. But I had to learn how to do that. I think as an adult, you, you have to ask yourself those questions. Am I taking responsibility? Um, am I holding myself accountable? Have I done all I can in this situation? What is this here to teach me? Um, I think that's important to uh, that self-evaluation. Was there ever a point in your career, especially senior year, when you thought about taking the next step and pursuing basketball at a higher level beyond college? Or was was that it? The four years kind of served the purpose they needed to at the time? Yeah. In regards to playing, I really wanted my career to be over when it was over. Um, I, I, don't, I don't ever have any memory of – I mean, I remember clearly understanding that – I did not want to play basketball beyond that moment. And, you know, some people feel that, some people don't feel that, but I definitely felt it, which is also, you know, again, you reflect back 20 years later, um, part of what I'm doing now, I've always just wanted to get in a space and be able to inspire people through my words and be able to help them enlarge their vision of what's possible because I was adopted and I grew up in that small town and I was in a verbally and sexually abusive home and I had seen things that I probably shouldn't have but and I wasn't the best student and I you know I had a lot of things that I didn't think I was really good at but I had this one thing and so I think my ability to try to communicate that there's magic in any situation is a part of all uh, what I've always wanted to do. Um, mm. So I knew, so I think I've all, I knew that it was time to be done when it was time to be done. I want to jump back to leadership because that's a topic you've spoke about quite a bit. What defines a great leader? And in addition, could you also include an example of someone that you've had in your life who's a great leader and try and show the different qualities and characteristics through their life? Yeah, uh, leadership is so complex. I mean, that's why there are a million books written about it and there are different types of leaders. And, um, you know, but I think the best leaders serve their people. I have a seven word leadership philosophy. It's called love your people more than your position. And I read that from John Maxwell probably 12, 15 years ago. And I thought it was the most profound thing I'd ever heard, you know, to to love your people more than your position. And it speaks at every level of leadership. Um, it's the responsibility that if you if you have if you have the knowledge, if you have the vision, uh, you got to make the people around you better. You have to serve them. And, and the intent has to be to create a world uh, for others that is better. And that's what I've that's that's my mission now. And so I think the best leaders do that. They take their knowledge, they take their resources, uh, they take what they they have, um, and they try to make people's lives better. And they don't do it for selfish, selfish reasons. Now, 
I know all leaders aren't like that. I know that's not the philosophy of every leader. Um, that's why I think it's a complex and uh, question and full of layers. But the best leader I had was um, my first my first coach, my first AAU coach. So AAU is a, a summer basketball that you know you travel and uh-huh. and so my first coach was a, a guy named Dana Conti, <clears throat> who. Um, he used to have to give me rides places and because my, you know, my mom was usually working two or three jobs and, um, just didn't, just didn't have the resources and time to take me to practice and get me back home and take me to that game and that tournament. So it became the, it became the village who helped raise me in this basketball world. But, um, Dana was, you know, after my first AAU tournament, it was like the last game of the season. And we still had about two months of the summer left. Now, at this point, my older brother is transitioning out of the home, going into college. And so there's a gap there where I'm kind of left to fend for myself a little bit. And Dana told me, hey, if you ever want to go to the YMCA, I go every day and play basketball. If you want want me to pick you up, um, I'll, I'll pick you up. Just call me. And I called him every day that summer to come pick me up. And he showed up every day. And I think looking back on it, I had never had anybody be so reliable and so and honor their word uh, so much. And that that ended up being something that we did. Even when I got to college, I'd come home in the summers or I'd drive back and forth in the summers and we'd meet at the Y for lunchtime basketball or we'd, I mean, it just became our thing that ended up extending past me when I'm, you know, a 12 year old kid, but he was so reliable and I just, I look back on it and think, man, he never lied to me. You know, he never, he used his resources to try to help me, um, Uh help, help, help me. And, and I don't think he knew that it would grow into what I am today. I think he was just doing it because he had a feel maybe as an older person to say, Hey, this, this kid's this kid's home life may not be that great. And she is a talented player. If she gets caught up in the wrong thing, she may not make it out of high point, you know, mm-hmm. because a lot of athletes don't make it out. You know, I'm by far not the best athlete that, that has come out of high point, North Carolina. There's been some girls who can play basketball from my area who grew up with the same story playing against older guys and they never make it out. They don't go to college. They don't see the world. And so I think it was his foresight to say, if I can help her in any way, and if she's willing to receive that help, because he's always reminding me that, you know, you did it, you, you did it. You have to be the person that people want to help. And, um, but I think being reliable, and again, just go back to the initial comments, serving, serving people, uh, using your resources to help and serve others, using your talents, your gifts to help serve others, I think is, is leadership. Were you always a giver or were you a taker at some point in your life? I think I've always been a, a giver. I've always been a servant. I've always been trying to do things to try to get the approval of others. You know, I think it may go back to the adoption thing or just the lack of love within the home. Maybe, you know, my mom never told me she loved me until I was like 22 years old till I was in college. You know, I remember the first time she said, I love you. I didn't grow up in a home where that was, that was the conversation. And so 
I just remember, I, I think I've always wanted to serve people. And, and even my mission now is like, I'm going to over deliver. I'm going to show up and I'm going to be the best you've ever seen at whatever I'm trying to do. At least that's my intention. Uh-huh. And, and not force you to like me, but open your eyes up to liking me. And uh, because my intentions are good, you know, I'm not going to take your energy and try to go do something negative with it. I'm going to try to take your energy um, and and help open your mind up to something maybe you weren't thinking about before, but also add value to who you are and then hopefully vice versa. So I think I've always and then the you know, the position of point guard is is to serve the people around you. I mean, it's a natural leadership position of service on a basketball floor. And um so no, I don't think I've been a, I wouldn't define myself as a taker. That's awesome. I want to jump back a little bit to your coaching career. And were there any players that stood out that had to face, you know, a huge struggle or adversity, but were able to overcome it with your help? Ooh, that's another good question. Um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the, I mean, that's one of the reasons I knew that you know, my mission within coaching was was probably larger because, you know, on every team I coached for 14 years at the college level, I've had somebody, a, a young lady on the team who had been sexually abused as well and who had shared that story with me. You know, I had a, a kid. I mean, there, there's so many stories. It's so common for me. But I'll tell you I'll tell you two stories. Um, one <clears throat> one kid, I was my first year being a head coach at Tusculum College, and one kid, dad, was terminally ill when I got the job. And um, it was a question in the air whether she was going to come back. There had been a coaching change. You know, was she going to, she was from Ohio, the school's in East Tennessee, so she was a distance from home. And it was, you know, I don't know if she's going to come back, coach, because her dad is really sick. She may want to transfer to a school closer to home. Well, I called her. And, and made a really good relationship and a connection with her and her mom, assured her that her her family would come first if she ever needed to get home quickly or they ever needed anything, that the health of her father and that family portion was going to be, be way more important than than academics and basketball. And um, and so she came back and, you know, it was the first year I coached as a head coach, it was the most successful year I had had statistically on paper. That team ended up being um, one of the top eight teams in the country. I think we finished the year ranked fourth or fifth in the country and at the division two level. And I've, I've had a chance to coach, you know, an all American. And it was just a really great experience from a professional standpoint. But um, the really eye opening part was you know, and I always think God is revealing things to you or the universe is revealing things to you all the time. But in the midst of this really, um, you know, good moment for me as a young professional, uh, this kid's dad dies. <clears throat> Her mother calls me and says, I want you to go and be with the kid's name was Stacy. I want you to go be with Stacy. Um, Her dad is dying. And now she, this is the time she needs to come home. Now, we had had other false alarms and he's not doing good today type of deals. And they, he had to go back to ICU and da, 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 da. But her mom is calling me and she's saying, this is the moment I need you to go tell her. And, you know, I'm, I think at the time I was 26, 27. And, um, you know, I realized in that moment where I'm walking across campus to go be with this kid, sit in her dorm room, tell her she's got to call her mom. They're going to get the arrangements for her to fly back home. And I'm going through all of these steps with her. And I have these knots in my stomach because, I mean, this is like real life. 
you know, and her dad gets on the phone and he's like, come home. Um, and so I just remember that being like, God, this is what it's about. It's about being there for kids that when their dad is dying, because you're the, you're the most trusted adult in their space right now, you're going to be the person that, that is there for them with this whole thing. And, um, and I was, you know, and she, I, I coached her my first two years as a head coach and she was a great kid and hard worker, but, uh, I, I had went through that with her family. I mean, I was responsible for getting the kids up to the my team to the funeral and, you know, just all of these pieces to that puzzle. And um, that just so eye opening for me, you know, the, the responsibility you have and the impact you can have from this leadership position. Interesting. Very interesting way that you've created a platform for yourself to impact people on that level. Yeah. Now, so that's a perfect um, segue into the next question because you spoke a lot about uh, players' perspective. What were the biggest lessons you learned when you compare your perspective as a player and your perspective as a coach? <laughs> well, we <laughs> coaches are very, very like arrogant and on that side of it because they think that the players don't know anything, and and then the players are very arrogant because they think coaches don't know anything. So <laughs> it's um, <laughs> when you cross over that bridge, it's very eye opening to understand who I was as a player, understand myself better from a coaching perspective. You know, I I knew who I was more as a young player than I was than I did when I was a player, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, becoming a coach and watching kids train every day and and be in the locker room and live the college life and watching it from the outside a little bit, um it gave me better understanding of who I was as a young kid and almost sometimes embarrassed that, you know, uh, I didn't work as hard as I thought I was or, you know, my attitude wasn't always what it needs to be. And and so, you know, just I, it gave me better perspective, I think. And I could evaluate my college years, you know, with more intellect, I guess, being a coach. But um, you know, if you stay willing and committed to learning, you know, that's what'll happen. And, um, I, I don't, I'm never too hard on my players cause I, cause I understand they are a work in progress and they are, well, I'm not a coach anymore, but I understand that there's that gap between, you know, becoming the best versions of yourself and, and college kids are so under, they're so underdeveloped mentally. Mm -hmm. you know, they haven't been around long enough to know how to handle the situations that they're going to be in um, or challenge to be in to try to compete at a high level or win every game or win every drill or win in the classroom. I mean, there's so many layers to being doing what you do as a college athlete that, you know, I, I get it a little more now. What's the vision for refu refuse to lose within the next, you know, five or 10 years or however long you planned it for? Yeah, I, so the so the main vision is ultimately to inspire the world to make adversity their advantage and do and to do that and not be limited um, in the avenues and the platforms in which I do it. So, you know, I'm a public speaker, um, but that, you know, speaker, trainer, personal development coach, um, I'll have, you know, my own live events. I'll be the primary practitioner for the for the first, you know, three years of the company, uh, I'll be a published author by the end of this, the summer of, of 2018. Um, you know, trying to, on every platform I can, communicate this message of hope, communicate this message of challenging people to own their outcomes. And the vision is to, to be in as many demographics 
as possible in front of as many different faces as possible. And so whether that's collaboration or partnering with your company to do this podcast right now or partnering with Disney to do something on another scale or partnering with, with um, you know, other companies internationally, you know, I just want to be able to communicate this message and continue to be innovative and, and find new ways to do it. How is, how is this changing you? How is Refuse to Lose changing you as a person, as a leader, as a business owner? Um, and do you have any advice for anyone who may be, you know, for example, starting a company or going after their vision? Mm-hmm. Are, are, there, I, I, are there things that they should be aware of before they start? Yeah, that's another good question. Like, how is this changing me? I mean, anytime you, you take the jump, you know, anytime you leave your comfort zone, you know, I'm talking about 30 years of basketball and, and, you know, at this point in the game, I was so comfortable doing it and being in that space and in that world. And I just knew it so well, um, outside of whether you, you can win or lose basketball games, you know, that can go either way, but do you know that space and world? I knew it well enough to live in it for the rest of my life if I chose. And so I, I chose to do something else. So that's the biggest thing I'm learning now in the first 12 months of, of starting my own company is that I had the courage to do it, you know, and sometimes you have to take those wins because learning the things or trying to get the information that I don't quite know yet is sometimes frustrating. Um, I'm trying to learn how to do so many things where, you know, whether it's running my website or, you know, social media and updating those things and trying to find someone to video and edit my videos and, and get speaking engagements. I'm trying to learn how to do so many things right now that sometimes I just have to take a step back and take the information I do have. And that is that you had the courage to leave the com- your comfort zone to, to pursue something um that you felt like was going to help you grow and evolve into a better version of yourself. And that's, that's step one of what I've, what I've learned about myself. Um, and what my advice, again, I, I, I would tell anybody, you know, your job is to continue to grow as an individual. It's not what I, it's not what I get from leaving. You know, I have, I have goals financially. I have, I have things I want, um, that can only be attained through, you know, monetary, you know, a home I want to buy or whatever. But the ultimate goal is who I get to become because I followed my dream. And um, the ultimate disappointment is who you don't know you are because you didn't have the courage to do so. So I think that would be the only um, word of advice I would have for someone else is just to do it and, and figure out how along the way, because life will open up doors and show you, uh, how, you know, it's just like basketball, you know, I take that world and I, I just transfer it. And I know I had the capacity to work. I know I had the capacity to attract great people into my space. I know I had the capacity to, to learn. Um, I had the discipline. I've already proven I can do it in this space. I just have to take the confidence I had there and transfer mm-hmm. it to this new space. And so I would, I would say, you know, believing in yourself enough and, and celebrating the fact that you did it. You know, that you did something that a lot of people are going to leave this earth and never had the courage to do. When you mean celebrating the fact that you did it, do you mean celebrating the even the small victories or only celebrate bigger milestones? Yeah, I think you got to celebrate small victories. I think you got to celebrate. I mean, you know, because here's the thing. 
when you're defining your success, oftentimes you you feel in your heart what a win is. You know, someone who's trying to lose weight and eat better and work out every day, um, they're going to find a win in just getting up today and getting on that treadmill for 30 minutes. You know, that may not be a win for someone else who does that consistently, um, but it's not up to them to decide your wins. And I think when you get up that next time and get on that treadmill, that's a W. And we got to take confidence in, in, in some of those some of those things that we know in our heart. You know, I know in my heart it's a it's a win that I was able to resign from my from my job and that career to go do something that I really, really felt in my heart. I mean, I wrote Refuse to Lose Down in 2009 <laughs> in a journal, you know, that I wanted to start this girls leadership academy and um, have, you know, I didn't know if it was going to be nonprofit. I didn't know what it looked like. I just know that it was on my heart and I wrote it down. And, you know, that's 2009. So it's 2017 before it actually happens. And but I'm so happy that I, I, I followed it. I listened to that, those those energies, those things that were trying to guide me to something else. And I just have to trust it at this point. So I think you decide what your wins are, you know, I think. But I do think, you know, in your heart, you know, when you decide not to get the dessert <laughs> when uh -huh. I'm at a restaurant and they say, you want bread? No, no, thank you. Or you, you want dessert? I'm like, no, no, thank you. My ability to say no, thank you in that moment is a win. And, um, you know, I think sometimes we have to live, you know, just be present and in the moment and give ourselves credit when, you know, credit's due. It's funny that you say that, you know, you wrote the vision or the idea for it in 2009. And it took, you know, that many years to evolve, eight years to evolve. Um, I was in a similar position where, you know, I, I didn't write Overcoming Outs in 2009, but I've always had this vision every single day of my life ever since I came to this country. And what I've noticed in my experience was that in a way, it's almost as if I was getting distracted by mm -hmm. other people telling me different things and saying, you know, maybe you should try this, maybe you should do this in life or become uh -huh. this position. And it's a very difficult thing to isolate yourself from mm -hmm. um, criticism in some ways and say, okay, I'm going to do what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've, I'm curious to know, like, how important is criticism, not only in your life, but for other people who are looking to farther develop their idea or their concept? Mm -hmm. Is that something that you would recommend? Uh, you know, I think, I think we all have to know that when a vision is in our head and in our heart, that it is in there for a reason and that it's ours and there's no way possible someone else was put here to understand it the way you are. And so whatever the opinion of someone else is, I understand that part of it. Like, I really understand that you don't even understand what I'm what my intentions here are to do. So how could you give me a, how, how could you, how could you comment? I don't uh -huh. think you're qualified. I, I, oh, like I, I'm not qualified to go into your head and tell you how to run overcoming the odds. You know, I can't even, you know, I can only support you in it, <laughs> but uh -huh. it's, it, I think it's the people because there's, there's more people who are not following their dreams. There are more people who aren't listening to those voices in their head and their heart who are trying to, offer opinions maybe that they, they're not qualified to offer. And I think we, you 
as the person with the vision have to be smart enough and really aware, like, where's this information coming from? And is this a trusted source? Um, because people who are following their dreams encourage other people to follow their dreams. <laughs> you know, awesome. people who are really like taking, uh, taking the swing at life, you know, they're, they're stepping up to bat every time, every day. They look at you and they applaud you. It's just natural, you know, because you're elevating on the same vibration. I applaud what you're doing because you have a vision and you're carrying it out every day and you're working towards it every day. I can see the parallels in what I'm doing, but I can't, I'm not qualified to tell you how to run your podcast or your Mm -hmm. company or write your stories or run your, I'm not qualified to do that and I would never do it. Um, And so I think we have to have the, I think it's just self-belief. I think it's just to know you know, in reality, if, if if I have something again, if I have something, how could that person tell me ex- how how to do what's in my head? Exactly. They, they just can't. They're not. Again, I just use that word again. They're just not qualified. And that's OK. It doesn't mean they're wrong. Um, you know, it doesn't mean they're a bad person. I mean, it doesn't mean they're a bad person. It just means, OK, you don't understand what's really going on in my head. <laughs> But this is, you know, this has been on me for ten, almost 10 years now. I got to do something about it mm-hmm. <laughs> because I'm not getting any younger. And so I think um, I think that's what's, you know, that's important. What brings you the most joy in life? <clears throat> well, I say it all the time when I'm standing in front of people and I get to connect with them in a way. Um, and, and communicate words of inspiration that help them enlarge their vision. You can feel it in a room. You can see their eyes light up. You can see their energy and their body language change. I think that's the closest I feel to God. And I want to be doing that and in that environment as much of my life as I possibly can. And so that is what feels natural, the most natural to me. Interesting. Um, final thought. When odds are completely against you, what are some core fundamental principles that you always refer to? Mm. (laughs) Um, I have a self-confidence formula. I'm huge on words of affirmations and mastering your language. I think I've always kept a vision in front of me. And what I mean by that is, you know, when I was, when I was growing up, I, um, from, from floor to ceiling, all over my bedroom wall were newspaper cutouts of uh, basketball players, Michael, Michael Jordan mostly, but Wake Forest players, Tim Duncan and Randolph Childress to be exact. And I just, I, I look back on some of those things and the way I built my first success and I just try to mimic it at times. And I was doing some of those things organically. Um, I think not giving the attention to odds you know, I give my I give my ability to do the job more credit than I give any sort of odd that may be stacked against me. I think there have been odds stacked against me that I don't even recognize. Uh-huh. And I think that's I think that's normal. I don't At think all we, times. Yeah, I don't think we know there's an odd stacked against us until someone says there's an odd stacked against you. You know, until I go and look at some stats on adopted kids who have been sexually abused, I don't know that I wasn't supposed to do X, Y, and Z. I just know I did it. And I think taking confidence from what you've achieved in the past is important, but also um, not listening to whatever the odds are supposed to be because the power inside of us has never been calculated, not by us and not by anyone else. So whatever's on paper, 
um, that's supposed to be an odd, I think that's fictitious. You know, I don't, I don't believe that. And so I master my language and master my mindset and keep the vision of what I want um, in front of me and, and always really, really believe in that inner voice of my talents and my gifts and what I'm supposed to be doing. I think those are phenomenal points because, you know, that's something that I've believed in for quite some time. And even when I started this, um, you know, at first I was told by other people that have had businesses not to not in the similar area at all. But, you know, they would say you got to do your research, you got to read the articles. And I think to some extent, yes, it is true. But what I've learned along the way is that there's so much of it. There's so much information in this world. Yep. And you, you can find any point you want that's going to defend what it is that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. So with something like this and with what you're doing, you know, with empowerment, I think that's mm-hmm. a perfect example, is there's really almost no point of looking back at past research that only research problems because mm-hmm. – Every single day that you're doing your job, you're going to discover even more problems. Yep. And so it, it really makes sense. I like how you said, you know, it's just really being self-aware of these things. Instead of focusing on problems, just continue focusing on your solution, your mm-hmm. form of it. Mm-hmm. And that's going to yep. define everything at the end of the day versus looking. And I, I also think that will help you a lot with potential failure or challenges when you, you know, when you see a problem written in an article and let's say you don't solve it, you know, that's a quote unquote fail on your part. Mm -hmm. And then you start to judge yourself and, you know, you may lose self-belief along the process. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's Mm -hmm. very important to take the approach that you just described. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can get overwhelmed with the noise and there's so much of it. I mean, you know, I when I, I this is this is a fact. When I I told I told my mentor, the guy who's the most reliable person I know, um, who I know loves me, but when I told him I wanted to resign, he kind of said, "Are you you know you sure you you know <laughs> what, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna go like motivational speak? Like what? <laughs> you know, he was kind of he's kind of like you know I know you can do anything, but you know okay, how are you gonna do this? And how are you gonna you know just challenging me on a lot of things? I said I, yeah, I don't have to know those pieces right now. I just have to know that this is the ne- next necessary step in my journey right now. Yes. And when I, and when it's time to learn the next thing, then I'll be present and I'll learn the next thing. And I I think we get overwhelmed by a lot of the noise, even from good intentioned people. And so it's it's really important again that you you wake up and you keep what you what you want to get done in front of you. And just trust that you're gonna attract the right books, the right articles, the right uh, people, the right podcast, the right whatever, you know, social media thread or whatever it is, you're going to attract those things into your life that are going to help you find out the house when it's time to figure out the house. Yeah, believe in the process. I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can receive all of our latest podcast episodes along with featured stand-up and speak-up stories and ways you can be involved with Overcoming Odds. If this podcast has had any sort of impact on your life, we would love to hear from you. Feel free to tag us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter or leave us a review on iTunes. Once again, thank you for listening 
and we'll look forward to having you next week.